Today's sponsor is Casper. Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash recode and using the promo code recode. Terms and conditions apply. Today is also sponsored by SoFi. SoFi is transforming the world of finance for the better. They offer great loans and help their members in ways that big banks can't. Visit SoFi.com, that's S-O-F-I.com, to learn more. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the proud owner of very small hands, but I guarantee you they're just fine. But in my spare time, I talk about tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can subscribe to Recode Decode. Stop. I'm here with Jamath, and he's laughing, and I'm going to get him to pronounce his last name, too. So you can subscribe to Recode Decode at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode, and while you're here, leave us a review. I'm going to mispronounce your name, Chamath. Today in the red chair, we have Chamath. Polly Hapatia. Polly Hapatia, the founder of the venture capital firm Social Plus Capital, yeah, right? Social Capital. Social yeah. Capital, all right. Yeah. Before he was, oh, so I've messed up everything, your name and the name. It's you had a good. plus in there for it's a while, good. right? We did, but then we, we finally bought the domain back from some Harvard professor that lorded over us. For, oh, for like Mike slash with the recode.net. Yeah. I'm going to try to get mine. Before he was a VC, he worked at AOL and Facebook. I met him at AOL. In addition to investing in companies like Palantir, Slack, and Box, he's been a vocal person in the political world and sports around immigration and equality, all kinds of things. Welcome, Chamath. You have a lot to say. Yes. You're very well-spoken, as they say. You really talk a lot. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy you're here. I, this is going to be great. So where shall we start? Like, we met at AOL, right? Correct? We Let's met, talk a little bit about our history. Well, our history is funny. So I was this, like, little plebe executive. Mm-hmm, I or, recall. Not even executive, wannabe executive. Yeah. You work for Ted Leonsis, I right? I work for Ted Leonsis and this gentleman, Kevin Conroy. Mm-hmm. And my job was when we were trying to salvage the music industry, mm-hmm. we created this horrible product. Mm-hmm. And I had to come and convince you and Walt to not totally decimate. <laughs> Which one was that? Which <laughs> horrible music pro- net? Music net. Oh my god! Oh wow! And I just remember thinking to myself, "Is this what like the kid in D Day felt like when yeah. he like you know?" I was like, "I'm just gonna." I'm, so I'm, you went to Walt's office, the famous Walt. I was just there in the background laughing at you, probably. You and also Katie. Oh right, we That's all looked at Katie it. It couldn't have been as bad as Halsey Minor and his member. The, he had a second yeah. after CNET. It was a social network kind of yeah. thing. Uh, yeah, that was. No, exactly. It, was, it wasn't that bad, but that was basically like my first exposure to the two of you. And the problem is, like Ted particularly is such a good storyteller. Mm-hmm. And he starts off the story like, well, you're basically going to talk to the two most important people in media, <laughs> uh, at the most important paper in the United States. And, right, and the I'm, Wall Street Journal. You know, this Canadian kid, and I'm just like, Jesus. And you read the reviews that you guys made, and it's just, or Walt did, and but then your articles, and just the whole thing was just like not... Did we get tricked? Well, by I it? had like, you know, when you're a young kid, like you have gastrointestinal dystrophy. Yeah, yeah. But Those were the know. early days. We forgave a lot then. Yeah. There were a lot of bad things out of AOL then. Wait, how did you get to AOL? Let's talk. I, I think people don't really know your background moved, as much. You're now Chamath. But before <laughs> Chamath, there was I Chamath. Moved, I moved. I grew up in Canada, uh, mm-hmm. but I, I came down in 2000 to work for a company called Winamp, mm-hmm. uh, and it was bought by AOL. Right. And I remember uh, that party. And then Winamp was merged with another music business called Spinner. So Winamp was a media player like iTunes. Spinner was the internet radio business. Mm-hmm. And that was the West Coast music business of AOL. Right. And then when and it, launch was for Yahoo, right? And Correct. launch was for Yahoo. Well, so and so just to give you a sense of it, because these are my lifelong friends, and the whole story revolves around that particular period of my life. 
all of our offices were in Potrero Hill in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And it was Launch, MTVI, Napster, us. Just yeah. in like this one little area. Mm-hmm. And that's where I met Dave Goldberg for the first time, mm-hmm. who became our good you know, one of my best friends. Mm-hmm. Um, that's also where I met Sean Parker when he was running Napster and I was helping run Winamp because then Parker was the one that originally introduced me to Zuck in 04. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people in my life that, that have really been seminal and pivotal were in that area. But right. basically what happened was I... I was working at an investment bank. I applied for a lot of jobs. I got two. You grew job up in offers. Canada, though, right? I grew up You're in from Canada. Canada, and then you originally went, from Sri Lanka. Okay. And I emigrated in 1982, and then uh, when there was a massive civil war, we couldn't go back. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in Canada. Right. Yeah. So I was applying for all these jobs because I was working at a bank, and I got two offers: one in like corp dev at eBay, uh-huh. and one at Winamp. Mm-hmm. And I mean, totally accidentally, I was like, "Oh, I should just go to the smaller company because." They are basically as young as I am, so I'm mm-hmm. like, they will know as little as I do. Right, but why did you want to leave a bank? A lot of people didn't. To be, you have a lot to, of entrepreneurs listening and, and people who were in situations like yours then. Here's, I can give you a very elegant narrative now, mm-hmm. but I'll tell you what was going on in my mind back then. The elegant right. narrative now is that I just think I came to a point in my life where I was like, I'm just tired of like checking boxes for people. Sure. And I had basically been living my parents' life. Mm-hmm. When I went to college, they basically helped me decide what college, what major. And in many ways, I was like kind of just like repressed. Right. And I wasn't myself. And mm-hmm. I didn't have a particularly fun high school experience. My dad was the one that went to the guidance counselor and got me to skip a grade. Right. But then I was like smaller than everybody else. And mm-hmm. then I was 16 when I graduated and my voice had barely broken and I would not even really gone through puberty. And mm-hmm. so – You're in college. Not I never had a girlfriend. Like right. all this shit was like <laughs> – and then I go through college and – and I'm just finally like, I, I just, I need to do Where'd what you go to I college? To University of Waterloo. Waterloo. Oh, up in Canada, right? In Canada. Oh, so you're really a Canadian. So I graduated. And With a computer science degree, presumably. Electrical engineering. Okay. And I got a job at working at this bank. And we were in really tough financial situation. I grew up on welfare. Because mm-hmm. when we decided to stay, yeah. we were, we Stuck. had nothing. Yeah, right. And, um, but this bank, you could make money. Mm-hmm. And so I went to the bank to make money. And I was a derivatives trader. And I did really well. I learned two things. One is I, I'm really good at risk, meaning I like I play poker you can take well. it. Yeah, I know how to take risk. We'll get I'm into relatively your poker fearless later. about money because I never had an attachment to money because I didn't have money. Mm-hmm. That was the first thing. But then the second thing I realized about myself is like I would ask these questions about like my surroundings and I could never get a good answer, and I would be basically pushing it down. Right. You know, I, I'd be thinking, oh, this the guy that I work with is a total douchebag. Mm-hmm. But I'd be like, who cares? You're going to make one hundred and twenty thousand dollars. Right. And then eventually I got to a point after my first year where I was paid well, I was able to pay off my student debt, and I had a really seminal moment where I was going in for my, like, a super bonus, like, on top of, like, what you would get paid because I had done some really good work for them and I'd made the money and I was expecting, wow, I'm going to pay, like, three or 400000 mm-hmm. I'm going to be able to help my parents and do all this stuff. And my boss at the time paid me zero. And it was because he saw that I was getting too egotistical and superficial. Mm-hmm. And I broke down and I was crying. And then I walked out of his office crying. I walked into the bathroom. And then I was like, what am I doing? Like, he's right. I'm wrong. I didn't like the person I was becoming. And then I was like, I'm just going to stop, like, checking the boxes that my parents were telling me to check. Mm -hmm. And it's not that it's their fault, but, like, they come from this place where they're like, we gave up everything. Like, not only did they want me to be successful, they needed to have social capital Right. That they could trade with their friends. Right, right, right. To make them feel better about their decisions. Sure. So it was just a very complicated time, and I was just like, I'm I, leaving. 
I'm leaving, and uh, I wanted to do something interesting. So then I just had to apply for any job. Right, I but they were all in the technical space. It was all the technical. Because space. I felt, I mean, I was technical, and right. I had always had technical jobs. And two of my friends, one was my so in the '90s right? ex-girlfriend, right. who be- re-became my girlfriend, who is now my wife. Okay. She was there, and this guy who we actually ended up funding, when I think he's going to build one of our biggest companies, our portfolio, was also there. Huh. And so I called Bridge, and I said, "Hey, listen, I'm going to." I want to come down. And I remember Sanjay, who's the other guy. Sanjay Barry runs this company called Netscope. Bridget ended up starting Social Capital with me. But Sanjay was wheeler-dealering. He had gone to Stanford for his master's. And I looked at that, and I'm like, I want what he has. And I wanted what Bridge had. And so I just said, I got to come down there. I applied to all these jobs. Google rejected me. And this is when, like, you have to go to, like, right. the About section of Google, right. go to the Jobs page. Right, right. And Small, you, info, early. you email info. Mm-hmm. And they don't even respond to you. And then the guys at eBay interviewed me. Tipco interviewed me. I got a job offer at eBay. Tipco said no. And Winamp said yes. So it's Winamp it was. And so Winamp it was. And it was in the city. And I thought, wow, this is pretty good. It's not in the, you know, right. Sunnyvale or wherever. So then it was quickly bought by AOL. Right? And then it was like it was a part of AOL. And I was part of the music business. And it was amazing because AOL all of a sudden hits the brick wall after the Time Warner merger. Mm-hmm. They start to fire a lot of people. And... Basically, honestly, Carol, what happened was I, I found a sponsor. I found a mentor, and he was basically like, okay, he's thinking to himself, how the hell did I just end up here? Right. Who was this? This Kevin was Conrad. Kevin, right. And he's like, why did I leave working at BMG? That's right. He was at BMG. For this, working mm-hmm. for Strauss Zelnick, another huge person in the media world. Mm-hmm. And Kevin was like the number two guy at BMG. And I think he maybe have felt a little bamboozled at coming to AOL Time Warner in the midst of all this. But- Every time he would come to the West Coast, I'd be the only one who knew my head from my ass because mm-hmm. everybody else couldn't give a shit. And I I was like – So you're still there at AOL. I was on a visa. Right. And I was like, holy shit, if I get fired, I'm screwed. Right. You know. So whatever he needs me to do, I'm just going to do whatever he needs me to do. Answer every email. What was Bill's it like during that time, during the, the, during the mess of the murder? I mean I wrote a whole book on it, so I had some clue. It is like so depressing because it's like – you have all these amazing people. They have all this lore that they mm-hmm. build up because like through the early 90s, mid-90s, they had built up all these people, David Gang, blah, blah, no. these amazing personalities. Absolutely, Meyer Burlow. Meyer Burlow, yeah. Bob Pittman, Don Davis, yep. all these people, huge personalities building the internet for the world. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. So important people, Steve Case, obviously, Ted, but – you're two degrees removed from it. So it's right. so frustrating. So like you're like so close to it and you, it's like, oh, if I could only meet those people. But I'm in San Francisco. They're in Washington. Yeah. And then they would come but you never got to interact because you're like a low-level muckety-muck mm-hmm. and they're – Well, you're not a muckety-muck in fact. Well, m- meaning You're in the, the muck. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I was in the muck. Sorry, you're right. Yeah, right. I was like I'm in the – They're muckety-mucks. Yeah, I'm their muckety-muck. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm just like a, you know, a low-level kind of rounding error to them. So what happened? So Kevin just needed work done, and I would do the work, and I kept getting promoted because he's like, he's cheap, he's good, and he doesn't ask questions. Right, right. The guy. <laughs> so You're the, the guy, the I young guy. The guy. Everybody now, has along a guy. the way, we had all these amazing things happen. The most important of which was, you know, the Winamp team built uh, a bunch of open source code mm-hmm. that we released for like five hours on AOL. Right, service, that's right, and they pulled it Nutella. back. Yep. And then Nutella was what was used to build Kazaa, LimeWire, BearShare. Yeah, you got in a bit of a trouble. I wrote that story. In hindsight, it was the pin that basically pulled the grenade that destroyed the music. Yes, business. absolutely. And so for me, I've, I'm like, I look back on it, I'm like, none of it was planned. 
I basically was like I had to grind and not, mm-hmm. you know, not lose my job. But in it, I think like I was around some pretty important historical yes, events at least were. for our world. Yeah, that was a disaster at you the know? time. Yeah. So how and did I you get? How did you leave there? What was the? You went to Facebook then. Basically, in 2004, Parker, Sean Parker said to me, hey, uh, I'm going to be in D.C. visiting my Where family. Where you were living. Because Parker was in. You yeah, were living I, in D.C. You were yeah. out at, at Dulles. Because I, I, then I, at that point, by 2004, I had gotten promoted and I was running AIM and ICQ. Mm-hmm. Um, and so basically Yossi what happened, Vardy, okay. Kevin and Ted kept promoting me. Mm-hmm. Kid kept grinding. He was roughly compliant. And so you know, they, kept, <laughs> so they, kept, they kept supporting me. It was great. So you're out in Dulles. Out in Dulles. And I get an email from Parker. I'm going to be out there, you should meet this guy that I'm working for. I'm now the president of the Facebook.com. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay. And uh, I mean, I, I remember it so vividly, a November day. And you know what it's like mm-hmm. in D.C. November. Beautiful. Cold, it raining. Be oh, okay. It could be beautiful, but it was right. cold and yeah. raining. Mm-hmm. And he wheels in and Mark's wearing shorts, mm-hmm. those Adidas slippers that he used to wear, mm-hmm. and that North Face zip-up. Yeah. And I was like, man, this kid is so This weird. is into Dallas, Virginia. Yeah, this is like 2004. Right, okay. But he met you there, out there. Yeah. Okay. And right. I remember going to Jim Bankoff, who now mm-hmm. runs Vox, and I yeah. said to Bankoff, I'm like, we should buy this company. Right. And Bankoff's like, no effing way are we going to be able to buy anything. Uh-huh. And he's like, get back to work, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, okay. And, uh, and so I did a deal with AOL, or with Facebook, where I said, you know what you guys need? You need Messenger inside of Facebook. Right. AIM has a great product. Let's integrate it, and we'll put a little running man beside every person's name on Facebook. Yeah. And if you go back into the Wayback Machine, you can see what that looked like. It was a horrendous deal for Facebook. Uh-huh. It was an amazing deal for AOL. Right. We got a great press Still didn't release. Save you. I had like four Still quotes that helped me get my you know EB one visa. I mean, uh-huh. like it played a huge factor. All right. For me, but how did you get to Facebook then after you screwed Mark Zuckerberg? So then Parker apparently. gets fired. Mm-hmm. You know, for all of that stuff, mm-hmm. and. Um, at that time, what happened was I got a job offer from Mayfield to be a junior partner. Mm-hmm. And yet again, I was like, I, ta- I called my parents. I'm like, hey, they didn't understand why I left banking to go to Winamp. To go to AOL. But then at AOL, they were like, wow, he's a vice president. Right. <laughs> Is that how they say it? And, you know, the, the head shake. <laughs> and he would tell us, you know, they would tell my, oh, he's a vice president at AOL. And so, and then, and then I'm like, oh, I'm quitting to go to Mayfield. And they're like, what does that mean? Yeah. And they were like, we don't understand. And then they said, how much do you make? And I said, $250,000. Right. And they're like, take it. Yeah, yeah, right, immediately. <laughs> take it now. Take it. And so I was like, okay. So I took the job. I moved out there. And uh, I would hang out with Mark because I didn't really know that many people. Zuck right. didn't know that many people. We would go out for dinner. We would hang out. And then somewhere along the way, uh, they needed to unwind the Facebook deal. Mm-hmm. And we spent some time. With the AOL. more time. Yeah. And one thing led to another. And then um, – He's like, well, you should come. And I said, I, I want to come. And um, What did you like about Facebook? I liked what, him. You liked him? I liked him. I was really not sure. I was thinking to myself, what is the worst that could happen? I mean, if you want, to be, yeah. if you want me to be totally honest. Yes, I was like, please. I was, like, what? I was like, what is the worst that could happen? Because I said to myself, I would love to have the courage to start something or join something amazing. I had never really done that. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be around really smart, young, technical people because I didn't get that network at AOL. Mm-hmm. Because all of those people were not really... No, they weren't. They were not known to me. Right. And then the other thing was, I was like, okay, in a success event, could I make a million dollars? Two million dollars? I'm like, right. that would be a game changer for me. Right. And so that was a lot of the justification. Mm-hmm. But So it's basically like, you go to work for a guy that you kind of feel like will give you room. What did you like about him? You know, it's a, it's a really good question. There's I, lots of startups here at I, the time. I, I think I just like liked how stoic he was. 
And I got, cause like I'm a bursty person. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost like, what do I love in my wife? She's a very good balance to my spiky personality. Right. She's like right down the middle, doesn't get overexcited. And every now and then basically tells me to shut the fuck up. Mm-hmm. And it's really helpful to me. It makes me a better person. But when I'm on, I think I'm really good because I will kind of like land something outlier that's not on anybody's mind. Mm-hmm. And so for Mark, I just felt really comfortable just being like crazy. And then he was the And then I think one. he like liked that sometimes I could vocalize some stuff that was in his mind and then we could regulate and we helped each other. Right. And you were, what was your job when you got? Well, it's a, I mean. It changed so, a couple of times. I mean, the, the inside story on all of this is basically like at that time, what was happening was that Owen was the CEO, Owen Van Nata. Mm-hmm, I remember. And Demoted. I, he's, forget it. So, in, yeah, not using that word, we were refactoring his role. Mm-hmm. And so in the refactorization of it. It's a joke we have because we use it as a, as a headline in all things D. And it, anyway, it's a long story. I mean, he would probably would have went sideways. Yeah, he was. Yeah. He sideways. So. In many ways, I think like part of my job was to come in and run product marketing platform, not really product because at that time product was very much like sacrosanct where Mark didn't really want anybody to run it and mm-hmm. nobody ran it because mm-hmm. we had experimented with a, a clean head of product mm-hmm. called Doug Hirsch, mm-hmm. Yahoo guy. But I remember he all your different examples. Yeah, he didn't well. work out. Yeah. And so Mark was basically like, listen, there's aspects of the product that I'm comfortable you having control, influencing, ads, platform. And then there's parts of the product, core product, where he was like, this is like, uh, I will decide. Right. So anyway, so it's called product, marketing, operations. And so that, that all of that stuff was meant to take stuff away from Owen. Mm-hmm. So I had a really kind of amorphous, fucked up role for a while. Mm-hmm. And the first year was really bad. I didn't get anything done. And uh, I didn't really do that well. Mm-hmm. And uh, it culminated in November of 2008. I remember this so vividly. I was in Thailand for a wedding, and we had just launched Beacon, which was our first attempt at yes. an advertising platform. Which was a disaster. And it was a huge disaster. Huge. Oh, sorry. Oh huge disaster. God. FTC, state attorneys Public. general suing us. Yeah. You know, they were like, oh, there are uh, news camera teams at mm-hmm. 101 University. And I remember, like, getting this email from Mark, and it was said something to the effect of, like, something to the effect of, like, hey, listen, a bunch of guys have come to talk to me about you, and they really don't trust you. Hmm. And it turned out it was from the business side, Mm -hmm. so the non-technical folks. And I was like, oh, shit, I'm going to get fired. Mm -hmm. Fast forward four or five months after that, Cheryl joins, and she's like, so where's your head at? And I was like listless then. At that period, it really Mm -hmm. took the wind out of my sails. And so um, I said, well, I kind of feel like I screwed this up, so here's my shot at redemption. And I pitched this idea. And they said, well, what do you call this thing where you – help change the product and do some SEO and SEM and mm-hmm. like algorithmically do this. They're like, what is that called? And I'm like, I don't know. I just call it like growth. Yeah. You know, we're going to try to grow. Right. Also, I'll be, I'll be the head of growing stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the title you had. And it was a game changer. Yeah. And the, the thing that it gave me was then like, that was the beginning of like, I could completely unpack all the, I mean, honestly, like if this sounds like a therapy session now, but like all I'm the psychological it. baggage. Right. Right? And it's like, all right, fuck it. I'm not listening to anybody anymore. I'm listening to my inner voice. Uh, I don't care what my parents say. I mean, my parents were like, what is Facebook? Why are you going? <laughs> His you parents know? just do what the opposite of what I they mean, say. It, and Well, you know what's so funny? It's like all the most important decisions that worked out for me, and again, it's not their fault, but was 
what they represent is like just safety. a reminder of like the safety, societally driven, right. outside in validated choice. Right. And I, whenever I've been the most successful, I did the inside out validated choice and I stuck to my guns. Yeah. And what was great about Facebook is like as it was growing, I got a lot of the credit. And as a result, I was able to then reflect back an extreme version of being an executive. Right. I was super apolitical. I was totally by myself. I played no games. Every time people would come in with a plan, I'm like, if you can't do it for half the number of people, I'll do it. I kept calling people out left, right, and center on everything. I was a curmudgeon. So this is when you became Chamath. I would see like a Audi in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. I would take pictures of it and email everybody saying, this is exactly what's going to fucking destroy it. Like there are all kinds of random <laughs> yeah. stuff. This is the ra- man who has a sports team, but yeah. okay. I would rail against, yeah, things change. <laughs> all right. Because, you know, I would rail against like the little skateboards with the one right. wheels. Yeah, yeah, that was, I remember that. I, I was, was like, was Randy like, Barker tried to make me. Even back then, I was like, why do we have all these free shit in the kitchens? It's like, I didn't. So, anyway, so I was like, curmudgeonly, mostly on purpose to make sure that we never got lost in ourselves. Right. In the success. Right. I'm not sure that would have been a problem with Mark in general, but. Not with him, but, but then there's everybody else. Yeah, that's true. And what's interesting, what I've realized is like, great companies, like, you need a couple of these standard bearers. Right. Because he. In success, gets more and more isolated. Right. Because everybody just kisses his ass. Right. That's because true. Nobody remembers what he was like when he was sitting there. He couldn't even introduce me remember. at the Aquarius Theater. I remember. You know, he was sitting there cross-legged, rocking back and forth. I think and I I'm said like, that to what? just recently a big internet person. I go, I remember when you were poor, so let's This dispense. is what I'm saying. And what's great about him is like he would hear that story and he would like relish it because it's like that, that shit keeps him honest. Yeah. And I think like that's what's amazing about him. And that's what I try to think about is like, you just, like the situations change and then people – put on you their perceptions of of success and then it just totally morphs their ability to be candid and straightforward. Right, right. And so I needed to be an extension of what got us there. Right. And I was like a bumbling guy and it was great because like my team was superior technically to like so many people in that company and they had zero respect for me. I propose an idea. They'd be like, that's so stupid. Mm-hmm. And they would like rail on me publicly. And, like, so you were like official jerk really. Like not a jerk though, because like I was like I was pretty like motivational. I think right. I refined. You're trying to get people to do things. You worked on a phone. Yeah. You worked on a lot of things. I kept pushing, 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 pushing. Intellectually pushing the boundaries and not getting complacent. All right, we're going to talk about why you left then and what you did after that. And first, we're going to take a break. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. A Casper mattress is one of a kind. It's obsessively engineered at a shockingly fair price. It has just the right sink and just the right bounce. Two technologies, latex foam and memory foam, come together for better nights and brighter days. And there's the risk-free trial and return policy. Try sleeping on a Casper for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. These mattresses are made in America. It's $500 for a twin-size mattress and $950 for a king-size mattress. That's an outstanding price point. Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash recode and using the promo code recode. That's casper.com slash R-E-C-O-D-E and use the promo code recode. Terms and conditions apply. We'd also like to thank Walker Corporate Law. Are you an entrepreneur or startup looking for legal help with your financing, acquisition, or corporation? If so, then you should consider checking out Walker Corporate Law. Walker Corporate Law is a different kind of law firm. Unlike traditional law firms, they have lawyers with 10 to 25 years experience, which means you're going to get personal attention from a senior lawyer, not a junior lawyer getting on-the-job training. They also encourage fixed fees because they believe that when a lawyer bills by the hour, it rewards inefficiency. So check them out at walkercorporatelaw.com, or you can call the founder, Scott Walker, at 415-979-9999. That's walkercorporatelaw.com or 415 979 
800-529-9999. Now that I'm finished with my ads, Chamath, we're here with Chamath. Polly Hapatia. Polly Hapatia, uh, who is a very famous venture capitalist and personality in Silicon Valley. And we were leaving off his fascinating life story, which I'm, I didn't know all of. I knew parts of. So you were at Facebook. You were working on the phone, their Facebook phone, which yeah. didn't work, which yeah. didn't work. Why didn't that work? And then I want to get onto what you're doing now, because I really it, like to talk I mean, about it. I mean, most, it mostly didn't work because of my ego, I think. Okay. But th- if I had to kind of say, like, there was a 12-month period of, like, just concentrated super creativity in terms of, like, how at least I felt for myself I was connecting the dots, that was that period. Um, and in it, I was able to take an entire group of people, really just, like, the best of the most creative kind of, like, early folks at Facebook and... I really convinced them about the need to build not just a software, software. platform, but software and hardware together. Right. And what's funny, and that this was in 2010. This um, is after Android, after iPhone. It just launched. Right. And so the window was still open, actually, for us mm-hmm. to have done something. A few months ago, I was actually at an event, and I ran into the industrial design firm, Yves Behar, mm-hmm. uh, at Fuse Project. And he's like, dude, I have, I still have one of the phones. And so he ran upstairs oh, to his wow. studio, and I saw it. And even to this day, I look at it, and I'm like, it was just... It was beautiful. Mm-hmm. It was just groundbreaking. Why, why did Facebook miss that one? I think I missed it because I made it difficult for Mark to say yes. And um, I think what happened was like somewhere along the way, I don't know whether it was like I got high on my own supply. Mm-hmm. I got, you know, I had traded all the capital, again, mm-hmm. social capital, mm-hmm. all the capital that I had built up at Facebook into making a bet. But what I didn't calculate was the cost of what that meant at that point in that company's life cycle. And specifically what I mean is when push came to shove, I had been negotiating with Intel and AT&T and all this stuff, and we had this amazing plan in place. It still would have cost Facebook a billion dollars to do what I wanted to do, which was a big bet. It was a hugely disruptive idea and go-to-market. The Mm -hmm. go-to-market was very expensive. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to lie. But I thought combined with how brilliant the software and and the hardware could have been, it really would have been an Apple iPhone-like moment. Mm-hmm. The problem was Facebook was still private, and it barely had a billion of cash in the balance sheet. It's a wrong and, timing. Well, it, he, Mark would have had to go public a year earlier. And I think in hindsight, he would probably say it probably wouldn't have mattered which year we went public. But at the time, it was a really important thing, and there was this whole culture developing in Silicon Valley about not going public and being private and you know all this stuff, which ultimately I consider now window dressing. Right. Um, but at the time, I think if I think if I had made myself more trustworthy um, in terms of the reasons why I wanted to do it, because I think there was a part of it where like I was like, wow, this really would really validate how like that I'm good. Mm-hmm. And so I think my insecurity cropped up. And really, what I should have been saying is, Mark, you need to do this, and you need to take this out, and you need to own this. And did I think, they miss the boat on that? Not having a phone? They ended up yeah, having a lot of the same app, yeah, of course. really critical no, apps. I mean, like, look, Facebook has done an exceptional job. Okay. It, it, in fact, I, I, I tweeted this out, but it's the fastest company to get to a $300 billion market cap. Mm-hmm. It took Google 15 years. It took Microsoft 25. It took Apple 35. It took Berkshire Hathaway almost 50. It took Facebook 12. It's amazing. The problem is that the half-life of getting there is also the half-life in having it destroyed. Right. And so right now, if you think about Facebook's execution, the execution is quite powerful and it makes a lot of sense, which is the following. And this is my strategy, Mm -hmm. articulating it as an outsider now, having been gone Mm -hmm. five years. If you look at a day, a day is compartmentalized into, you know, probably three major blocks of time. There's the time in which you're sleeping and doing all kinds of sundry activities. And then there's the amount of time you're working and then the amount of time you're playing. 
And I think that for roughly for most people, that playing section is a four to six hour block. And I, and I don't mean playing in like some pejorative sense. Mm-hmm. I mean yeah, not working. Not working. And I think what Facebook is is the 600-pound – is that the term? 600-pound? 800-pound? Gorilla. 800. The 800-pound gorilla in that four-hour block of time. And I think what they've done really deftly is every time a new lily pad emerges that sucks up time in that quadrant, they go and they buy it. Instagram is working. They buy it. WhatsApp is working. They buy it. Snapchat was working. They tried to buy it. Oculus is essentially a bet of that. Mm-hmm. Again, so, so they're very good at monopolizing a person in that four- to six-hour window. The thing that it doesn't allow them to do, though, is now think about this as a 24-hour problem. So they're not in the workspace. They're not in the workspace. They're not in the, you know. But then the real question to ask ourselves is, well, why define the problem as a 24-hour problem? So if you look at a Google, Google's approach to answering that is totally different. They're like, who cares about the 24-hour? They're like, what's the hardest and most interesting problem I could solve? And I'm going to throw money at it. Robots, great. Balloons, fantastic. Autonomous cars, wonderful. Search, video. And so they're much more haphazard and scattered. Mm -hmm. So for Facebook, I think what it would have done is created more dimensionality in staying relevant. Right. Because they would have not just been at the application level of the stack. They would have been everywhere. They would have been everywhere. Right. And so it would have given them the ability to have more variables. Can they do that now? I think it's too late to – I think that's – maybe Oculus is a bet that that can happen. I actually think it's too late. I think the business as it is, though, is still a profoundly important business. Facebook will be a trillion-dollar company in 10 or 15 years, but it, it will be a constrained Consumer. approach to value creation. And, that, and those constraints will allow you to create enormous value, but those constraints will probably also put that value under duress – when Snapchat gets to scale or the N plus one version of a company who doesn't want to sell gets mm-hmm. to scale. Basically, in the totality of all this, I really think what, what we're really speaking about is like there are like these two companies that I think are basically playing for the future of progress. Which is? Facebook, again, though in a very nominal definition of time. Mm-hmm. Google with a much more amorphous kind of like throw a bunch of shit against the wall. And I think like, you know, uh, and this may sound grandiose, but I think that's where social capital plays. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, we compare ourselves to them all the time, where our business model more and more looks like Alphabet versus Facebook Inc. I see. You've talked about that. How did you get to – so you weren't – you didn't want to be a traditional venture capitalist. You leave Facebook. Phone doesn't work out. You leave. What did you think you were going to do? Your parents are now freaking out. No, now my parents – You made some money. Now I've made some cash. Yeah. Well, the, the first little while was purely fun. Yeah, you did some rich guy things. Did some rich guy things. You know, bought a piece, a piece of the Warriors, you know, floated around, uh, took a month off. I moved to Las Vegas. I played a bunch of poker. Mm-hmm. You know, basically like fun things. That was just rewarding my own psyche. And then afterwards, the big thing that I wanted to figure out was, and I, I don't know if you remember at the time, but right at the time it was the Arab Spring. Mm-hmm. And right before that, a year and a half before that, I think it was in 2010, I may be getting the dates wrong, there were actually riots in Paris. And then there were the shootings in, or, or the terrorist attacks in London. And, um, you know, what I had also realized along the way was I didn't want to be like some bitter minority guy who was like, oh, I'm getting fucked. Mm-hmm. I didn't get fucked. I got mm-hmm. really lucky. Mm-hmm. But I empathize with that struggle. I empathize with the struggle of women. I empathize with the struggle of other minorities. I empathize with the struggle of, you know, LGBT, and the reason is because we all have to deal with signaling that's telling us here's the pathway, and you just don't fit the pathway. Mm-hmm. And so you have a choice. My choice was 
to get enough capital where I could opt myself out. But honestly, for every person like me or like you that's famous and can basically make create a safe harbor for your minority class or for my minority class, there are all these people who are still trapped. So they may resonate with you, but they're not empowered to get out. Mm-hmm. And uh, it kind of came to a head where I was like, okay, if I'm going to do something, what are the things that I can do well and what do I want to accomplish? And to be really honest with you, um, there's a very capitalistic tendency that I have, which is like I want to win and I want to win at scale and I want to prove that I'm one of the smartest people around and that whatever the game is, as the game gets more and more complex, I want to win the game. I'm not a corpo fucking execute type. Mm-hmm. And the well, you more, have been. The more, yeah, I have been. Yeah. But like the more the complexity and the stakes get higher, I actually think I can get better and, and I'm, I like that challenge. Mm-hmm. Like I want to be Steph Curry. I don't, it's not good enough to hit threes from 29 feet. I mm-hmm. want to be the guy that can hit consistent threes from 40 feet right? because that's a dagger. And when you're that guy, mm-hmm. you are unstoppable. And the reason why that's powerful is then you get a bully pulpit where when you say something, it matters, it matters and it becomes the de facto expectation. And so for me, it's like, wow. The thing that I really believe in is like, and you know, we're like wherever, whenever I have like issues with relationships with people, even when like my wife thinks I'm a total jerk, it's because I I sometimes get very Darwinian and I tend to think that like whoever wins the race should just win. But then I realize how amazing would it be if everybody can run the race? And you're like, well, what does that mean? And I'm like, well, literally that's what it means. Like what if on every single fucking dimension – it's the best of the best won everything. What if like the entrance into Harvard was a pure meritocracy, total blind admission? You could not put your name, right? Mm-hmm. You could basically do some things where 15 million kids all around the world, well, guess what? Every fucking kid that went to that school would not be the kids that go into that no, school right they would now. Not, yeah. Okay? Because those kids know in their heart of hearts that they're imposters. They're there because somebody pulled the string, somebody wrote an essay, somebody packaged them. The best of the best are not at Harvard. The best of the best are bumbling around. At best, maybe at IIT. They could be at Waterloo. But they're most likely working in some fucking cement factory in Nigeria. Mm -hmm. And so to me, the disruption of upheaving society's value system became Mm all-encompassing. Because I think that solves all these problems. It solves people wanting to attack London, people going on shooting rampages in Paris, people lighting themselves on fire, people protesting in— So you're um, talking about true equality where it's— yeah, but just because it wouldn't it be so interesting to see what happens? Mm-hmm. I can't tell you what. Maybe nothing would change, but it would be amazing. You would, you know. So how Trump, do you achieve Sanders, that? So, you, so stuff? you start a venture firm. I mean, an investment firm. Or what do you call social and capital? It's not precisely any of those things. Well, social capital. What we say is, I mean, we we have a mission, and what we talk about is that we're trying to advance humanity by solving the world's hardest problems, and that's like a lot of words. But basically, what it means is there are systems that are highly asymmetric today that you can level with technology so meaning make them totally symmetric and in making things symmetric you get more people to the starting line and then you can run races and as it turns out that doing this it can also make you literally trillions of dollars so for me i'm like well in all this technological upheaval there's going to be massive wealth created it's going to get allocated to somebody better people with a moral imperative who have a sense of equality and a sense of social justice than a bunch of rich douchebags that are already rich, mm-hmm. number one. Two, in doing that, you work on the most interesting things. Three, you actually have a better chance of building them 
because people are actually, you find out, more interested in working on those than the shitty other companies that they'd be working at. Mm -hmm. And then you create a system that is like interesting because you don't know what the outcome is. It's not predetermined. And so that's what social capital is. We started as a venture firm because it allows us to use money and to invest capital on things that can be really enormous and really impactful. And it allows us in success to define for people incrementally what those really important, really valuable things are. So tell me about a couple of them. What to you are the most important? So I'll, I'll give you a couple of okay. examples of right. things that we've done. I mean, you know, we've done these amazing things like, you know, I mean, we're investors in Dropbox, Box, Yammer, Slack, amazing companies. But along the way, all of that confidence allows us to do, I'll, I'll give you two examples. Right. So in cancer, four and a half years ago, we meet these two guys running a company called Syaps, S-Y-A-P-S-E. Couldn't get funding. For two and a half years, couldn't raise a single dollar. Why? Because it's not the next social networking app. We ripped the money in after two days of work because we had been thinking about cancer and mm -hmm. precision medicine. Four years later, these guys now treat 10% of cancer patients' lives. They finished this massive longitudinal trial at one of the top five cancer hospitals in the United States on tens of thousands of patients, and they found before them... 75 to 85% were getting the wrong drug and dosage, 15% mm -hmm. extra cost. And what they were able to do is cut those out to zero. And then if you were a stage three cancer patient, they doubled your life expectancy. And I look at that and I'm like, why is that a leveler? It's because some mother or father is not going to die of cancer. They're going to be around for their kids. Those kids are not going to either have to drop out of school, get some shitbag job to pay for these crazy healthcare expenses. They're going to be able to stay on track. They're going to stay focused. And that kid's going to get to the starting line. We're never going to get a single ounce of credit for that. Mm -hmm. Who cares? But that company is an enormously valuable company because it has this high moral value and it has tangible economic value. I started a company in diabetes, same thing. Right. We did this thing in education. I remember you talked about it. Yeah, we did this thing in education called Brilliant. We are indexing the world's smartest kids, and guess what you find? They're all over the fucking place. Mm -hmm. They're hiding Some in plain sight. Some people call that talentism. It's around. It's everywhere. I think that's the word I listened and, to recently. And, and the internet is a leveler. This girl, who would otherwise be in fear in Pakistan of like genital mutilation or getting married off at 13 – can sneak to a computer, get on a web browser, and demonstrate how great she is in STEM, and now we know who she is. And at least we know who she is, step one. Step two, we got to figure out how to extract her and get her here and send her to a great school and have her work at a great company that we care about versus like getting married off and just having children. So another business that I think is going to make an enormous amount of money over time because, again, they are in control of human capital, mm -hmm. of the smartest young people, but they're doing it by solving a really high-order moral thing. So I just think there's so many of these things to do. That's fun because then, again, I'm solving my own weaknesses. You work on things that keep you really morally disciplined. And then you set your trajectory 40 years into the future. And then you don't get distracted. That said, you still are in normal companies too. I mean, Slack is not doing this or Box or any of the others. You're, but you're if in we those. weren't in those, it'd be much harder for us to do those. That's what I mean. Things. That's what I mean. So yeah. you do both. You have you to be both. in those both. Because again, I think like as an example with Slack, Slack is completely changing the face they of are. work. I mean, they are going to destroy email. They are going to build a network effect across all companies. And what it's going to do for people is something that I think is so important, which is they're going to give you back time. Mm-hmm. 
And in this world, we're like... There's so many interesting stories off of Slack, even how people converse in the workplace. It's For bad a, or worse, I was thinking the other day, you know, some people... I think Slack dramatically diminishes politics. Really? That's interesting. Because it's documented, and it's a living document that never goes away. And so it's right. hard to have... You know, you know, like when you send like an email no, to like thousands of people or hundreds or tens of people or a CC. And, and then and then people CC and then some people little R and yeah. reply all and <laughs> you strip out all of that nonsense yeah. because it has to be a single unified thread. Mm-hmm. It completely streamlines. No, no, it's a fascinating company. So, I know. But my point is that like by doing that, it just gives us more confidence that when nobody else will touch the education idea, we can rip the money in. Right. Because like, whatever, okay, we can afford to lose $10 million because Slack's going to make us 4 or $5 billion. Right, right. All right, we're going to get back to where Silicon Valley is now when we get back with Chamath. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by SoFi. SoFi is transforming the financial world by offering great rates on things like student loan refinancing, personal loans, and mortgages. The process is pretty simple. They look at the financial potential of their members, and if there's promise, they back them for life. Which means if you borrow with SoFi, you get an awesome set of perks too. Career services, member happy hours, nationwide networking events, employment protection, and even an entrepreneur program. The idea is that SoFi succeeds when their members succeed. So they'll do all they can do to help their members out. Learn more about what they can offer at SoFi.com. That's S-O-F-I.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com. I'd also like to tell you a little bit about Recode Media with Peter Kafka. Hey, I'm Peter Kafka. Hey, Peter. I like being able to summon you to do these ad reads that we have to do. The reality is you can summon me into anything here <laughs> no, and I, I will can't. show up. So tell me a little bit about Recode Media. Who have you talked to so far? Recode Media is almost as good. No, you know what? It is as good as, right, uh, okay. as Recode Decode. I've talked to David Remnick. You know him. Mm-hmm. It's the New Yorker. I talked to Carly Zakin and Daniel Weisberg. They created The Skim just recently talked to Peter Gould, who made Better Call Saul, the awesome TV show. Well, you can find all these episodes and more at iTunes.com slash Recode Media. That's Recode Media with Peter Kafka at iTunes.com slash Recode Media. Thanks, Kara. We're here with Chamath Palihapitiya, who is one of the most interesting investors in Silicon Valley, I think, and who we've known for a long time. We've been talking about a lot of things, including the way venture capitalists don't really talk, which is actually making a difference. Do you feel that you're different from Silicon Valley? No, I actually think I, I do a better job of representing Silicon Valley than my peer group. I mean, I think that their Your peer group doesn't talk like this. Well, our, my peer group's full of losers, mostly. <laughs> um, and they're morons. Didn't say and it. And they're old. All right, I agree. they're just dated. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, but honestly, like— But other than that— no, but, Yeah, exactly. Other than that, how was the play? Yeah. Um, you know, th- I think, like, early on, the gap between the entrepreneur and the investor classes were very similar— Mm-hmm. So, like, if you, if I mean, I, I'm only presuming, but when you look at what it was like in the '60s and '70s, right. you had these sort of like misanthrope kind of like founders and misanthrope investors who were not investing to invest; they were like, "I'm paying it forward." And, mm-hmm. and but then it, it got it got businessified, mm-hmm. and then what happened was is run. I just over, want to note you made a horrible yeah. face, like you were just smelling oh, yeah, something yeah. really bad. Yeah, it's it's the smell of it is just putrid to me. Like yeah. if it was a smell, so businessified. Just like it, cause so then all these people with like these credentials and check boxes and like oh well I did three years at McKinsey and then I yeah. summered at blah 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 and mm-hmm. then I got my MBA at the GBS or the mm-hmm. HSB and I, you're just like whatever. Mm-hmm. They ran over the business and made it a business, but they didn't even make it a very good business. You know, just think about the distribution of outcomes. In a business, you would measure success by saying, well, can you consistently win? And, uh, you know, I think some some firms will create the bravado of consistently winning. Mm-hmm. But let's just look at, like, the last 15 years because I think that's the most indicative. In the last 15 years, we've had Google, Facebook, and Uber. 
But what's interesting about that is that there has been no consistency of winning. Right, of anybody who's in it. Sequoia and Kleiner were in Google. Excel and Greylock were in Facebook. Benchmark is in Uber. To me, what it says is that the reason why there's such a divergence and no consistency and repeatability is that the investor class and the entrepreneurial class continually gets out of whack. And the more and more it gets out of whack, the more and more these outcomes tend to be randomly distributed. And so just as a smart business person, I think the challenge is to close the gap. Right. And I think it's ridiculous to want the entrepreneurial class to look more like the investor class. In fact, it should be the exact opposite. And so we just set about understanding that quantitatively, and then you can solve it. But I don't think most people care to solve it because most people in the investor class look like a very old, dated representation of what success looked like. Well, to me, it's guessing a lot of the time. And it's a, it's a lot of ego-driven bravado. Mm-hmm. And so, so I think the state of Silicon Valley is actually— So what has to change in that, in the investing? Oh, the, 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 I mean, I think what's going to change is firms like us who, frankly, look on every justifiable quantitative metric is ahead of everybody else. Mm-hmm. Like, literally. The percentage of companies that are considered high growth, the percentage of companies that get follow-on financing, the percentage of companies that are like considered that having mindshare. Us or people like us, the young firms like Formation Aid or what have you, mm-hmm. YC in some places— continually over-index and do better. And it's because I think So what are those qualities? What are those qualities? So I think it's realizing what the structural differences in entrepreneurs are. Number one, there's a class, they're generally younger. Number two, they're much more gender diverse. Number three, they're much more racially diverse. Number four, they're more liberally open-minded. And so if you represent that, then you are much more empathetic to the decisions that they're making, the business that they're, they're making. They're more likely to get funded by those people. And then these entrepreneurs are more likely to pick you over others. And I think that's the process that we're going through right now. So what you're seeing is a four- to five-year process at a minimum, mm-hmm. 10 years at a maximum, I think, where we're reallocating wins. And in that, you're going to see an entire generation of firms decay and go by the wayside and an entire new generation of firms emerge. So why is it that we consistently have this persistent problem of all white, all male, all the same? Because that doesn't seem to go away at the companies. When you Slack I, is probably one of the few that has been Slack's, trying. Slack's an unbelievable example of deciding that in success they can actually, you know, use their bully pulpit to reframe the discussions of what is valuable, and it's just it's so laudable what they're doing. But by the way, this is not a Silicon Valley problem. Like this is a political problem. I mean, look what's happening in the in the current election cycle. Mm-hmm. Right now, we are, and you know, uh, one of my partners said this. It's and it's really well said. It's like. We're at a point right now where, like, there's a massive capitulation amongst the insider races and classes. And the insiders are getting extremely worried that we are now challenging historical norms in a way that's actually really counterproductive to the folks that are already in Most of it's happening on the right, interestingly enough. In politics, it's happening entirely on the right. Yeah. Um, And so I just think, like, it's important to acknowledge because I think what it will do is it will create a wave of – um, again, racial and gender equality and, you know... Uh, Except in politics, that's the opposite of what's happening on the right. It's well, becoming more white, more angry, more... I actually think it, it's it's actually the um, it's the step where you burn the boats. So it's kind of mm-hmm. like Cortez landing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's like he's telling he's telling his team, well, we're staying or, or we're going to die, so burn right. the fucking boats. Right, right. And so I think that's actually where we are. So I'm not sure that... So I, I think it's like the last gasp before the establishment basically croaks. Mm-hmm. So I think that exists in politics. I think that exists in finance. I think that exists in all parts of the economic structures 
What's great about Silicon Valley is that you can uproot and turn over those structures so quickly. That's why I think it's a 10-year problem at the maximum. Meaning you believe that we'll become more diverse. Oh, my God. You're going to see so many female startup billionaires, so many, uh, you know, African-American, Hispanic, Chinese, Indian, you know, successful people. And in that, they're going to assert their values on the world. Mm -hmm. That's an amazing thing. You know, you're going to see people start companies and completely endorse, you know, LGBT rights from the outset. That's going to be an amazing thing for the world. You're going to pull people into places where they're initially uncomfortable and have to basically come to like a moral decision about what's right and wrong. That's amazing. And you feel like that's going to happen in four or five years. God, I, I wish no, I was hopeful No, I think, the, I think the people that are in control of the capital mm-hmm. are going to change at a minimum in four to max in ten. And then that happens. And then that happens. The company building will still take years. But what's great is, look – if you get two or three Facebooks, we're only talking about a 12-year problem. Mm-hmm. And it's probably not even 12 because it's getting shorter and shorter. shorter, and shorter. It may yeah. be an eight-year problem, mm-hmm. right? So if we have three or four multi-hundred billion dollar companies get, get created with a completely different set of values. Like, look, Give me an I, example of something. Well, let's just say, like, look, I think Slack is a multi-hundred billion dollar mm-hmm. company. What is it going to say when Slack is just like out there? And everybody knows it. And, and you look at the composition of whether it's executives or whether it's a company, it just represents a much more constructive view of the world. Mm-hmm. And then you have Facebook and Apple and Google who then will take it even more seriously than you're taking it now. Mm-hmm. And then every startup's going to take it seriously. Think about like the more superficial things. For example, Google starts to give away massages. Facebook gives away massages. Every company has to give away not just massages but like, you know, free spa days. So startups copy what good companies do because they think that it's all contributing to success. Yeah. In this case, what Slack is doing actually does contribute to success. The fucking right. kind bars don't do right. shit. Right. Right. And so if you can copy the kind bars, you're probably going to want to copy the really important stuff. Like a diverse. Like a diverse workforce, mm-hmm. like, like just a more open-minded philosophical mm-hmm. approach to company building. Mm-hmm. If it turns out, which I think it will, that that actually drives great outcomes, mm-hmm. then all of these young entrepreneurs – and I'm saying this right. almost semi-cynically – They'll just copy it because they just want to win. Right, exactly. It'll turn out that it's no, also it the right thing to do. But, yeah. but but then you have companies, how would you look at like an Uber, who I don't think is pushing those values necessarily? No, but I think that they're going to create a bunch. I think that there's a lot of people at Uber that probably like put up with it because the equity is awesome and mm-hmm. will probably leave and do it after that. Like actually Uber is the most interesting case of like the employees that I talk to uh, who are probably like the most in moral angst. Mm-hmm. But they, they're like, well, shit, the equity's ripping, so mm-hmm. I'm just going to keep my head down. Right. Okay. But what, tell me wh- which companies do represent what you're talking about, Slack. What else? I think Slack. I think Facebook has a really empathetic kind they of do. like employee base. I think those people are going to do amazing things on this front. I think Apple, actually. Mm-hmm. Although their their ability to actually start well, that great skew companies. older and whiter? And- yeah. Their, their ability to start companies is not that good, yeah. to be quite honest. Yeah. Uh, so the employee base there is a little meh. Yeah. Um, the Goog, but the Goog is more like, they're like so like clinical ones yeah. and zeros. Yeah, they they're are. like, what does the data say? <laughs> Let me copy the data. You know, so so they're like, they don't they care. they have pioneered a lot of changes in the workplace. They no, no, they have. do. But I'm yeah. just saying like, you know, like for example, like on the, on the, like just on like the gender equality stuff yeah. or whatever. They'll just look at it as a statistic. They will. And, and they just say, did. Did you see the story in yeah, the New York Times? Metric this. Metrically, it's correct. So Let us check this, this to the metrics. Yeah. <laughs> We need to work on this for next quarter. How do you then look at – what new startups do you find interesting in that regard then? Because everyone's worried about a downturn and everything else. Do you? you? Uh, No. Um, I don't think it matters for great companies. In fact, if you actually look back – You're right. Google started. I know. They all did. But here's here's what's more interesting just as a little data factoid Mm -hmm. for you. A multi-hundred billion dollar company has been created every six years – 
dating back to, I think it was like 76. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. statistically... Where are the next big ones coming? The next big where? ones getting where? started. Where? And right then I want to ask you a couple quick questions to finish up. I, I actually think like the thing that people are getting to is a realization that uh, what we really need is uh, more time. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's going to be something that basically gives us time. Okay. That's the most precious aspect. Meaning not dying or just freeze up our life? No, I think it's... I feel like I I think it's time. a more superficial right at the outset. Right. I think in the, in the next 20 or 30 years, it's dying. Mm-hmm. But the, the first manifestation is just going to be... Like if you think like Facebook allows you to get to know everybody, it doesn't really get you to know anybody. It just kind of maps shit out for you. Right. And so then now there's like all this stuff that can happen on top of it that gives you more time or around it or because you've already made a, a decision that... Like for example... 20 years ago, you and I, how would we have met people? We were constrained to meeting people, right. like real relationships and trust. Mm-hmm. 100% of it was offline, zero was online. Now a lot of it's online. Now think about like a 15-year-old. They'll have entire relationships. Oh, my son just did. Super yes, trustworthy. I know. Yeah. And they will trust these people and it'll be like 40 to 50%. So the moral fabric is changing. Mm-hmm. Our, our sense of like how we think things are right and wrong are changing. Um, and in that, I think that a system that basically gives you back time mm-hmm. is a really important driver. That's interesting. Driver I hadn't even thought of. I've never heard that. That's an interesting uh, idea. Let me ask you about some superficial, timely now things. Yeah. You've talked a lot on your Q&A and core, which I thoroughly enjoyed and wrote about. Twitter, briefly. I mean, I think it's I think it's just a shit show. It's a total, utter failure of everybody involved, quite honestly. Like, it's a failure of the board. Mm-hmm. It's an extremely ridiculous set of ego-driven decisions. And I think that unfortunately the people that ultimately suffer will be the employees. I mean, as it turns out, you know, we have a really powerful recruiting pipeline and, you know, I mean, we're, we're talking to all the top people at Twitter right? and we're shocked that they're mm-hmm. all leaving. And so when you unpack that, I think it's because there's no coherent strategy. As an example, you know, today is February, whatever, or March something. Mm-hmm. March, March, 3rd. March 3rd. And like today, like my entire app was taken over by like a GIF thing. Mm-hmm. Like yes, use GIFs or whatever. And I'm like, this is so stupid. It's like, have an editorial perspective. Like I use Twitter for knowledge mm-hmm. and communication. So you don't want to give. I don't want to, I don't. And so it's like the fact that there's no even basic understanding of like, so there's no editorial concept of what's going on, which to me, it just means it's rudderless. Mm-hmm. And so then if something is rudderless, not only can you not spend half time, you have to spend double time. Right. And so you can't have a leader that's doing two things. Just as a very practical thing. It is, it is absolutely not an indictment about him or his capability. Jack Dorsey. This is internet time. Right. Most people, there is no single IPO other than Facebook and tech that's up above water. So even when the smartest of the smart allocate 24 hours a day, Mm -hmm. they can barely run a public company well. Right. In fact, none of them can except one guy. Mm Mm-hmm. So what do we think? How, how, so, so just statistically, it makes no sense. <laughs> right, right. That's which a then, fair which, point. Which then is like, then the only reason why this stuff happens is because of ego. Yes, and that's indeed. a terrible way to make decisions. It's a really good thing to have. We all need it to make ourselves feel valuable and be confident in decision making. But that is not what should drive the decision. Well, now I'm scared to ask about Marissa Marin Yahoo, which I write about a lot, even though. I don't think that she was the right choice. Yeah. And I did not know that. Except when the person that chose her, Dan Loeb, mm-hmm. sold all of his stock at $30 right. and got off the board. Right. And that was the only signal that mattered to yeah, me. He did his job. Because he was the one that got the time to know who the right leader should be, pick the right leader, put a billion dollars of his own money behind it. But the minute that he exits, it's a huge red flag. Absolutely. And there, nothing else mattered to me at that point. Right. 
And so I've, I've kind of just – whenever the minute I saw it, I kind of just moved on mentally and I said, well, that's not going to work. Right. Because he would have stayed. Right. It's right. not as if he's crushing it right now. Mm-hmm. He's getting obliterated in the markets. Right, right. So if he thought that that was going to be an outlier, he would have stayed. He would have stayed. Right? You vote with your cash and you vote with stock, especially when you're a public market investor, particularly as sophisticated as he is. So there's just not much more to think about at that point. So Absolutely. that's kind of like, what was my point on Yahoo? Yeah, yeah. Are there any companies you think that are undervalued right now that are getting sort of smacked in, or any areas? Yeah. I mean, LinkedIn, I think, is uh, – there are two companies in my mind that are totally undervalued. Number one, LinkedIn, I think, is the most uh, incredible uh, under-monetized mm-hmm. asset on the internet. And it's also the only real monopoly. Like I think Facebook has Many a, people think it's underleveraged. I think Some Facebook PE has firms a, apparently. Yeah, I mean I think Facebook has a rough monopoly. Mm-hmm. But LinkedIn has an absolute unassailable monopoly. And so when they really capture the totality of what's possible in developing human capital, that could be an enormous company. And I think right now they don't get enough credit for what they've done. That's a business you have to remember. The dis- so this is what goes back to like you have to back people that I think have the discipline – those guys have discipline. Wiener has discipline. Reed has discipline. Why? Because we, they were comp to us every single year when they were growing up. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's not Facebook. But they kept at it. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's not Facebook. They kept at it. And every year they just kept putting up 50%, 60%, 70%. Right. And they've grown revenue from $100 million to $4 billion. Those guys are good, so they're getting beaten up unnecessarily. Right. The second company is Amazon. Amazon is uh, – I love my Echo. You know I'm obsessed with my Echo. I mean – that commercial is. I love my Echo. I just bought an Echo Dot. I don't know why. I, I, I so I just clicked. So I think what Jeff is is spoke. the single. So if you talk about like again back to the Facebook and Alphabet, mm-hmm. what Mark is becoming is a master capital allocator. What Warren Buffett is is a capital allocator. What Larry is learning to become is a capital allocator. Jeff is actually the best capital allocator of all of them. He takes just enough small bets, makes thousands of bets. The minute that something works, he's able to put money into it. He is the only person to have built $200 billion companies. AWS? AWS and the retail business. Nobody else has. Facebook has acquired it and Larry has acquired it. Jeff built it. So I kind of and think like- And he's going like, in the next direction with entertainment. Too. And I kind of think like, you know, you can like hashtag drop Mike at that point because mm-hmm. like that just makes you the best of the best. But Amazon, AWS is a tax on the internet. And the minute that you, you can f- frame your mind to understand why that is so- most of the companies will spend 1% to 2% of their revenue on that on AWS. It's a tax. It's mm-hmm. a proxy for a tax. You are better off making small amounts of money off of everybody than a large amount of money off a few people. Mm-hmm. It's simple economics. Yep. And so it is in my – Something Google missed. I had a long conversation about Sundar about that. Like he said we were using yeah. our own in capacity. My, in my, like, so for me, and I'll just tell you, it is the single biggest stock I own. And, I will, and, I, and it is the one that I have – I am fearless about owning 30 years from now. Mm-hmm. There's, just, there's just nothing. It's impenetrable. The others you have to be, kind of stay on top of. Yeah. But Amazon is kind of a set it and forget it thing. All right. I'm going to finish up with two quick questions. Even though we've gone a long time, it's been a fascinating conversation, so I think it's worth it. Is poker and your sports. And the last, last thing I want to talk about is this idea of uh, sort of the denigration of non-white people across our political landscape right now and here in Silicon Valley. Let's start with that very briefly. You talk a lot about that, about those issues. It's become a big deal in the presidential race where one of the, the leading candidates spends every day insulting some other group. Yeah. And? I mean, I think 
I want to say that he is a racist or a bigot. I actually think he's not. Mm-hmm. I think what he realizes is that it allows him to capture a press cycle and that it really just speaks more to the naivety of the media than it does to his bigotry. I think he like he is like a A-B tester gone amok. <laughs> he goes into these little groups and he like says something. He sees how it pulls yeah. in real time and he amplifies the things that works and he anchors And then he takes them. it back like he did with torture today. Yeah, oh, yes, no, I wouldn't torture. Exactly. I don't think what you hear from Donald Trump is anything related to what really matters or what he really believes. I think he's trying to win a game. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, morality has changed, and he understands this, where lying is not what it meant in the 60s. Right. Nixon lied. Right. He left the presidency. Now, lying, he, it's irrelevant. Right. He just changes. I mean, Hillary Clinton lied. It's irrelevant. She's going to win the Democratic nomination. Trump lies all the time. It doesn't matter. And so what it's saying is society has decided that that doesn't matter. Right. And so he's moved on. So I look at it as theatrics. But I think generally, honestly, the world is a safer place. It's a better place. It's a more progressive, open place. We've kind of like kicked down the doors. Yeah, I think they're just so mad. In enough ways. And I think there's like this last group of holdouts who feel really uncomfortable with what's happening. They never wanted marriage definition to be open. They never wanted – like there's just all these things. You, mm-hmm. know, the, you know, like Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. has to be all lives matter. Mm-hmm. Well, no. Like mm-hmm. fuck – like black people have been – fucking fucked over like yeah it's just the honest to god truth like mm-hmm. so you gotta you have to give space for us to like acknowledge that because as a society then you don't become empathetic enough to everybody because sure. eventually every majority becomes a minority mm-hmm. you know what i'm are. saying that's what's happening and so right now is the opportunity for all of us to internalize that truth and develop empathy because then when you demonstrate it when you're on top there was an amazing executive that i interacted with in the 2000s and he was like the CEO of TiVo, COO of TiVo. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can't remember his name, but like a Southern guy. I, I remember. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I know who you're talking about. He had the most amazing quote for me. He, we were in an elevator and we had this meeting. And I, I had uh, – I was, again, the junior guy. Yeah. I was there to just like take notes, whatever. And he stopped me when the elevator opened and like, you know, Kevin walked out and Ted walks out and all these – the big guys walk out and he says, listen, kid, you said nothing in the meeting. I'm going to give you a little piece of advice. He said – and he said it in this southern accent, which I can't mm-hmm. imitate as well as my Indian accent. He said, be careful. You know, he's like, you saw how I behaved in that meeting? And he's like, I didn't have to give you guys anything, but I gave you a lot. And, and he said, because be careful who you fuck on the way up because they'll fuck you on yeah, the way down. Yeah, that's an old saying. And that's yeah. seared in my mind. Yeah. It is seared in my mind True. to this day. And it's like I think that's what we all now have a chance to learn. Right. The graciousness. There's a – not to go on this Such topic. Such a graceless but, time. And learning grace, you mm-hmm. know, it's just like it's a hard thing to do. There's a – Ray Dalio, big mm-hmm. hedge fund guy, mm-hmm. runs Bridgewater, his biggest hedge fund. He had this really amazing video on how the economy works. But underneath that is like a 300-page treatise. You don't want to read it. But I'll summarize the most important part of it, which is all the way at the end, and I can tell you the page number, 285. He talks about empires. And what he says – and this is a different version of this quote. He's like, empires, speaking of the British Empire, the Indo Empire, the, uh, the Chinese Empire, the American Empire, work in the cycle of four stages. First, you're a poor country and you act poor. Then you're a rich country, but you still act poor. Mm-hmm. Then you're a rich country and you act rich. And then you're a poor country, act but you rich. still think you're rich. Yeah. And to me, again, those two things together basically say like, 
we have this decision to make because we're in a transitory state. Mm-hmm. Or do we still want to be the rich country that is still rich? I think we would all say yes. In that, I think we got to figure out how to like open the doors, get more people to the starting line, because then we'll keep winning. Right. Speaking of winning, team. Wow. Amazing. 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 How much do you own of that team? Uh, I think I'm like one of the fourth or fifth. So there's like six of us that yeah. own like, and Pieces I'm one of those guys, and we're the six of us are on the board. Yeah. The managing partner and CEO. Joe Lacob owns the most, and Peter Guber than a handful of us. Mm-hmm. And do you like owning a team? Or did yeah. you, is that just a rich guy thing to do? You have to no, like to be fun. honest, it was a very, very superficial, ego-driven thing because I was like, wow, I am like the raisin in rice pudding here. <laughs> I wanted to check the box. you know. I wanted to like roll around and be able to say it. I have a team. And uh, it's been an amazing thing for me because it's given me a lot of confidence. And what's Good. great is other people give you permission, right? even though I'm not involved in it. I don't run it day to day. I don't. It's, yeah, it's, you're a team owner. I used to go to the board meetings, but even now I've just gotten so time constrained. I don't even yeah. get to go to those. Yeah. I don't even get to go to that many games. But uh, I love what it's enabled. Yeah. And it's amazing to see them win. Yeah, it is. And yeah. the, it's nice to have a team owner. And I, I used to think, you know, I used to see Ted. Oh, with Leonsis, his team. He loves You know, Leonsis. when Leonsis bought the Wizards. Yeah. It just seemed like such a faraway thing for me at the yeah. time. And, and and Ted was like such a godly figure. Yeah. You know, he would have a – he had a guy – I mean, like now we have Uber. But like he would have a guy that picked him up in like a Lincoln Town car, yep, yep. you know, okay. every day and bring him his mail. And yeah. like, you know, he would – he's an owner of an NBA He was team. like that when he was four, and, my friend. And man, you were just like, wow, like what does that even mean? And it's cool. And I think like there's a bunch of other like yeah. young, cool people. Yeah. If they get into – like for Sports. example – It'd be really great if, if we see like a progressive ownership structure in the in NFL because oh that would be nice because like NFL unlike other uh, in like any other sport has a massive moral overhang that has to get solved yeah around and the, I think again injuries. if you had more women or if you had other people who were more empathetic then you'd probably have a different solution to these problems and except it is football there is a problem at the base of the heart of what the game is it seems to me maybe. I won't let my kids play it. It's just, I won't let my kids play it either. Yeah, it's interesting. I ran into one of the NFL heads. It might have been Goodell. And he's like, do your kids play? I'm like, if I want them to be stupid by 39, I guess I would. Like, yeah. no, of course yeah. not. It's really interesting. I think they're going to face some really interesting issues going forward. Lastly, very briefly, poker. Are you still like, how much time do you spend playing poker? I play once a week. Once a week. Yeah. Just once a week. Yeah. And you still love it as much it's as you? It's incredible. And what's Tell great us is, what you get out of it. Uh, defeat. Mm-hmm. Um, ego management. Learning to deal with failure, risk. and then risk and managing risk and taking risk—it's a life cycle of a startup in every hand. Mm-hmm. And then the thing that I also get now is just camaraderie, particularly after Dave died. Mm-hmm. This is Dave Goldberg. I just like don't—I've realized like I just don't have many friends. Mm-hmm. And then it's harder and harder to make friends, and so I just don't have people to spend mm-hmm. time with that I like trust. And yeah. Then, that you can open up with. So it's been a very... Uh, you had a nice group. It was a nice group. Remember that plane ride we took that yeah, one time? Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. We laughed the whole way. You guys laughed the whole way. It was a nice yeah. group I of really, people. I really miss him. And then you all played poker and I laughed because I don't play <laughs> poker. Should I play poker? You should. It's an, an I think I'd be terrible game. at it. No. See, I think people like jump to these assumptions, but it's like, it's just an amazing... If you're, it gives me a stomachache when I play it. No, it's like, it's good business people make great poker players. Really? Just I'm, like, it's just... Terrible. I don't know. It just gives me a stomachache. I always think I'm wrong. But that could, that could also be good, you know? I guess. Flush no. the system. No, 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 no. I'd like to win. And if I don't win, I feel sick. But that's so good. But that's <laughs> what I'm saying. So the dealing with that when you don't win is such great training for work when you may not win no, all because, the time. No, because I have to win. You see, that's the problem. 
I know, so do I, but I'm just saying, like, he's like, then you deal with it, and then you're like, oh, yeah, I gotta take a deep breath, I'm gonna walk around the block, I'm, you know. I guess, yeah. I guess. Okay, what last, very last question, because you're yeah. so interesting. What would you be if you weren't this? What would, if you could change your life right now, what would be the one thing you would be? And you have to be super brief. Uh, I, you can't I, take I would, superhero. I would like to be like a litigator. I can see that. You gonna do that? No. No. Uh, I'd like to be a litigator. And so what stops you? I think this is more leveraged for me. Yeah. 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 So you want to be a Warren Buffett-like character? Well, yeah. The, I, I want to be relevant when I'm in my 80s. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's no chance that I want to not, not give up. Okay. I don't want to become lazy. All right. Chamath, thank you so much. It's been a riveting conversation thank as you. usual. Thank Thanks. you. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews I've done with Hadi Partovi, Gavin Newsom, and Secretary of Defense Ash Carter, just to name a few. You can find these interviews and more at recode.net slash decode. Don't miss our other podcasts, Recode Replay, Too Embarrassed to Ask, and Recode Media with Peter Kafka. You can find them all at recode.net slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. Remember to subscribe to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. You can hear Peter Kafka this Thursday on the Recode Media Podcast. I'll be on Too Embarrassed to Ask this Friday with Lauren Good at The Verge and then back here on Recode Decode on Monday with another great guest. Tune in then. This has been Recode Decode hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. For more hard-hitting interviews with insiders from the worlds of tech, media, and politics, subscribe to Recode Replay on iTunes, featuring candid conversations with leading voices like AOL CEO Tim Armstrong, Goldman Sachs' CIO Marty Chavez, the team behind the hit TV show Empire, Shark Tank investor Mark Cuban, and presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. They're all on Recode Replay.